Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Kevin Sartain. Kevin is the principal of Beach House School in Rochdale. The institution is an independent co-educational school for those years aged 2 to 16. Kevin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning. It's sunny in Rochdale for a change as well. I think it's sunny all over the year, the country. Very bright down here in uh, yeah. London. And of course, I, I checked the um, the weather forecast in Greater Manchester as well. So yeah, very warm all over the uh, the UK today. It's I think it's fair to say. Um, it's a great day for it. And um, the purpose of this discussion, Kevin, is to really establish first and foremost your take on leadership as a whole. So if we just look at that word leader in isolation to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. It's somebody who provides a clear vision of where they want to take whatever business or establishment that they're running and making sure that everybody is aware of the goals and aims that you're setting yourself and your staff. And if we think about the fact that taking people with you is incredibly important in that sense, um, there is a degree of people management that then comes into the umbrella of leadership, isn't there? Although you could say leadership and management are very different things, there is some overlap. And I think people management is a very important part of that overlap because communication is a very key element of uh, just that. And you can't really hope to be a good leader without being an effective communicator, can you? That's a very, very crucial thing. Oh, no, you can't sit in your ivory tower. You've got to be able to know your staff and know their strengths, know their weaknesses, and be able to build on the strengths and remove the weaknesses that they possess. And I think it also takes a degree of adaptability and flexibility, doesn't it? Because no one approach might necessarily work for different personalities. As a leader, I think you maybe have to find different ways of motivating certain people. And likewise, if we just touch on for a moment the uh, the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that our working practices have been heavily affected by that, um, today's business, organisational, educational leaders have often had to have some very different conversations with certain people who've had to continue working under different conditions. Some have had to, of course, adapt to working remotely. Others have continued to work on different sites under new safety procedures, whereas others maybe have been furloughed and are at home at the uh, the moment. And um, in order to sort of keep them motivated, it can often take sort of very different approaches from leaders, can't it? Some might need that little bit of an extra arm around them, whereas others are more inclined to kind of get on with it. So flexibility from that point of view, I think is incredibly important as well, isn't it? It's fair to say. Oh, yes. You've got to know how your staff respond to certain situations. And I'll be honest, I can't fault the staff here in these difficult times. They've all rallied and pulled through. And no matter what has been asked them, they have carried it out as well and diligently as they possibly have can do. And from a mental health and well-being perspective, have they adapted quite well to the situation from that point of view, just given the renewed focus that we've had on those issues during this time? Oh, I think so, yes. I mean, everybody here obviously has the children's interest at heart. And unfortunately, the situation is that they're the ones who are suffering the most. 
Exactly right. Um, and I can imagine that sort of the day-to-day running of the schools being severely hampered by what's been going on with the uh, the pandemic as well. How has it been adapting sort of generally to the, the challenges that that's brought about? Because I can imagine that's been uh, tremendously difficult. Yes, I mean, we're fortunate in the fact that if you count the sports or we're equivalent of five separate buildings. So I've been able to put bubbles of different year groups in different buildings and they never come into contact with any other child or bubble groups during the whole working day. And that's worked brilliantly for the, since we opened on back on the June the 1st. And in fact, some staff don't even see other staff because we have staggered start, staggered finishes. Uh, today, for instance, we should have sports day. Now, rather than disappoint the infants and the juniors, each bubble is going out and having one running race in their bubble so we're not missing sports day per se. That's incredibly positive. And uh, that also comes back to adaptability and flexibility, doesn't it? To sort of be ready for changing guidelines, changing circumstances. Um, while we're on... Yep. Um, yep, um, do, do carry on, Kevin. Um, I'll ask a question once um, you're finished. Um, they, they actually change before the ink's dry on what you've just changed. Mm. Interestingly, um, yeah, the uh, the question I was going to ask was very much based around uh, that idea because there's been a great deal of debate, hasn't there? I'm sure you'll agree on um, the clarity of government guidelines and the fact that they're changing quite at pace. Um, and in light of that debate, I was interested to understand whether you feel personally that you've fully understood exactly what's been expected of you as a school throughout the pandemic and you continue to be so as things start to reopen again. The guidelines are really made for large state schools, small schools like ourselves, where in the guidelines it says all classes should be under 15, well, or 15 and under. All our classes are 15 and under. So the guidelines are not one size fits all. That's the problem. What suits a small school will not suit a large school. And the guidelines, I think, are specifically made for large schools. I mean, the year 10 situation was a prime example where if you have 200 year 10s in a large school, you can bring 50 back. But if you have 16, you can't bring those 16 back because originally Mm. it was a quarter. I can see exactly where you're coming from, from that point of view, Kevin. And um, I think considering the impact that it's had on general working practices, um, of course, I'm sure you're aware that there's a great deal of debate about how maybe remote working is going to become more of a thing in future. And that includes also remote provision of education as well. Can you see sort of the way that the sector functions fundamentally changing in future as a result of this pandemic? You can't beat the teacher personal approach. No matter how we've mm. been using Google Classroom, and the, the children who have come back are all glad to come back. I mean, social distancing. We have two-year-olds who will sit at a table, all their toys and work are put on the table, and they will carry it out. They're able to do social distancing because you've obviously explained it to them, but they understand this is what's happening, and they're adaptable at a very early age. The senior ones were probably less adaptable, but they're they're adjusting. And I think you've got to have that one-to-one contact and face-to-face contact. And every child that's come back to school has been pleased. 
I remember being over in the nursery the other day and a parent came to pick their child up who was most upset he had to go home. I think we have taken that human contact side of things for granted, haven't we, in the run-up to this? It's um, something that we're really noticing that we miss um, at this time because ultimately as human beings, we're social creatures, aren't we? Oh, yeah. I mean, the year group I feel sorry for is year 11s who some of them have been in the school for 13 years. This was their big climax of years of study and it was taken away from them. Only today they're still talking about do we have prom in September? Well, even if they do, it won't be the same as having your prom on the last day of term when you say goodbye to that stage of your life. Mm, it is a real shame for pupils of uh, that age because it has really thrown everything um, up into the air and it's, it has affected the ability of people to really enjoy themselves and feel that sense of accomplishment when they get to the end of, um, of course, their uh, school years, the end of exams, etc. And... Um, as we sort of think about what the future is now going to hold, um, Kevin, um, and the challenges that operating under the new normal will bring, what do you actually envision for yourself and Beach House School over the course of the next 12 to 18 months? And what do you hope to really achieve as we move through the uh, the pandemic? Well, hopefully we're aiming to get back where we should be if we haven't had the interruption. And that's going to be a big task both for staff and pupils because having missed so many months of education, you haven't got in some year groups that much time to catch it up. And it's going to require a concerted effort on both parties, pupils, and most importantly, staff. And in my opinion, I have the staff that can manage to do that. That's incredibly encouraging, but it's a huge issue that the sector is up against. You're absolutely right, because... Is it something like sixty percent of class time lost in the uh, the last in in twenty twenty as a year as a whole? Because of course schools have closed from March right the way through to September. I think that's roughly right, isn't it? Oh no, as I said, catching that time up is going to be impossible. But not only that side of the uh, educational side, it's the amount of sporting events that we would have had taken mm. place. I've usually produced a calendar with a list of all the events. So the first. Or second week in September, we'd have had the Independent Schools Association North of England water polo finals. And schools look forward to that, turn up every year. It won't take place this year. When competitive sport in schools takes place, and not just uh, sport, but other activities like school trips, it's a, it's the children who are missing out on these things. And that's part and parcel of your education, not just the academic side. Exactly. It's about school life, isn't it? An enrichment term in that side of things. Um, Lastly, Kevin, before I do um, let you go, what I would like to ask is, um, based upon the experience that you've had in the education sector over the years and also the experience that you've had in managing this crisis, if you will, if you were perhaps to give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what advice would you give them? Don't set too many targets. Look, biggest issue I find with young leaders who are coming into the teaching profession is that they set themselves so many targets and you won't achieve them. Do small amounts of targets that are manageable. When you've achieved those, move on to your next targets rather than have a huge list of an action plan that you can't get through. 
slow and steady steps focus on of course short-term gains rather than being distracted essentially by that exactly but don't really i think it's important as well in that advice to not lose sight of the uh, the long-term goal but just break things down into manageable chunks i think that's very very sound advice indeed kevin for sure Um, I have to say, it's been a real pleasure having you um, on the uh, the programme with us um, this morning. It's a shame we don't have more time, otherwise we could talk long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, yeah, but, um, but also, Kevin, given how informative it's actually been having you join us, you know, I think it would be fantastic even from a listener's perspective to perhaps catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the year, uh, the next year, just to see Not exactly what's changed in the time between exactly and um, understand maybe how the school's getting on under the conditions of the new normal. Yeah, it would be a pleasure. It would be a real pleasure for myself as well, Kevin. And until we do touch base again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Because although things are starting to return to some form of normality, it's fair to say we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. And you as well. That was Kevin Sartain speaking, principal of Beach House School in Rochdale. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords today, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, have to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.